0: Dear church, it's good to be back. I'm glad to see Yay! <laughs> For those of you uh, who are guests, um, the church has been so kind to give me and my family over this summer a sabbatical. And uh, we are now back in the swing of things, and I begin a full fledged uh, formal privilege to serve you guys this week. So, I just want to not only say that I'm glad to be back, um, but thank you. Thank you for prioritizing this in my life and in the lives of our pastors and staff. And it was such a privilege and really an invaluable gift uh, that I had some extended time of focus, uh, reflection, study, time with family, travel, And most importantly, unhurried moments. Unhurried moments with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to pray, to repent, to be refreshed, and to be shaped by his loving presence. And so thank you. Going into sabbaticals, there's a lot of planning to get ready for that time away. But there are also some fears as well. One of which is like performance anxiety. You uh, talk to many pastors and there is a fight that you, upon return, have to, rep- have to prove ROI. That is, your return on investment. The idea might be, hey, if we're going to give you this much time away, something massive better happen when you return. It better be worth the investment. And that can bring a little bit of fear. But I can also say how thankful I was when some of you came to me and said the opposite. When you said, I want you to rest, recreate or recreate, seek deep enjoyment, and place no expectation of accomplishment on yourself. That was so healing. But I'd be lying if over these past few weeks coming back in, there weren't just this little residue of you got something to say or not. (laughs) Something happened? Well, I can tell you the Lord met me. And he has changed me. And he is changing me. I'm excited to be here. I do believe he had a word. He has a word for me and for you and for us as a family. So I set out in this sabbatical on a quest for joy. Last sabbatical, there was a question that was kind of thrust upon me, and that is, what is rest, and why don't I have it? And interestingly, there's significant overlap between last sabbatical and this one, but I sought out to ask a different question, even though they're a little bit the same, is what is joy, and how can it be sustained? What is joy and how can it be sustained? So while on my journey of what I assume will be a lifelong journey, I found the simplest and sweetest answer that's already been read for you. And it comes from Psalm 1611. In his presence is fullness of joy. Full stop. No but. Not just a future reality. But now, for his people, in his presence, is fullness of joy. And so, over these next two weeks, I get the privilege to give a little bit of a snapshot. The hardest thing has been, I can't give you everything. A little bit of a snapshot in these two weeks. And in part, here's how it happened. I took Jesus up on his offer in what he says in John 15 verse 9. When he offers me and you to abide in his love. Listen to these words from John 15 9. This is where we'll be diving into and the sermon will be coming out from. Listen to these words of Jesus. He says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you, abide in my love. So what I want to do is I want to read these words in context by reading John 15, 1 through 11, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into this familiar passages, this familiar passage, and together abide in the steadfast love of the Lord. John 15, 1 through 11. Let's hear God's word. Jesus says this, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Notice, Every branch gets cut in some way. Either cut off or cut back for bearing more fruit. Verse 3, echoing the words that he had just given to Peter in John 13, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. That clean word is code word for forgiven, cleansed. Verse 4, abide in me. What he does right there, between verses 4 and 10, he says, Abide 10 times. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides. That is, remains, stays connected to, or in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5 I am the vine. You are the branches. That means our life depends on Jesus. He's the source of our life. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish And it will be done for you. Because by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And now notice this connection between abide in his love and verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we open your faithful word to hear your promised voice. And in this moment, together, we acknowledge that You are here. And I pray that You give us the courage and the strength to bring all that we are to You in this moment. Father, show us Your sovereign, in control, trustworthy, yet tender, steadfast love. Son, Jesus the Christ, pour out Your peace providing joy-giving grace. Holy Spirit, beautify them both. Refresh our hearts. Deepen our affections. And supply us with all we need to walk with You. Father, we are in Your presence. Open our hearts to hear from You. And receive you as we receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a part of my sabbatical, I took some time to read through the gospel of John slowly. And as I read, I did come, obviously, to John 15. And it was there that I was struck by how many times Jesus calls us to abide. He invites us in, he speaks of the necessity of this word abide, as I've already said, ten times. Now I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but when Jesus says ten times in eleven verses, really less than that, six verses, that I should abide, I see that he really wants us to hear something here. He really wants us to hear this and to live it. Abide in my love. Now what was striking is that this collided with a journey that God has been bringing me on that abiding is not hurrying. You cannot abide and be hurried. It is not a fast-paced, hurried word. It means remain. Remain with. It's a nod to resting and trusting in the Lord for life, for full life, abundant life. If you hike to the top of a mountain and you say, now I'm going to abide and you look out over the vista. The goal, the apex of what you were longing for, you would not conclude that if you were to abide, you would run around in circles. Abiding means that You've seen something that strikes you. And you want to sit and take it in. This is abiding. Remaining. It is not a run fast word. It is not a hurry up word. And as Jesus speaks to this idea of abide in John 15. He gives us nods as to what exactly he even means. If you look at verses 2 and 4. It means to remain in him like a branch remains in the trunk of a tree or they're used to wine vineyards and grapevines it's it's when the vine is connected if it breaks off there's no life and therefore there's no fruit the point of this passage is not bear fruit the point of this passage is abide in the vine and fruit will come we are created as receivers Not doers. Abide. Fruit will come. John 15 says that it is in the abiding where life is found. That's verses 2 and 4. If you look at verse 3, it says to abide is to remain in His Word. Because His Word not only brings salvation, that is, makes us clean. But it gives us ongoing life. Fruit-bearing life. What's this fruit? It's not bigger, faster, stronger, more famous, and richer. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what He will produce. It's the fruit of the Spirit. To abide means to be in His presence. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, what does He say? If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, talk to Me. Talk to Me. Ask what's in your heart. Bring it to Me. I'm a God who answers. This is abiding. Verse 10. He goes on to say that part of our abiding is hearing His commands Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and wanting to follow Jesus in doing those. Walking with Jesus to adore the Father above all, to make much of the Son in the power of the Spirit, so that we can love our neighbor as ourself. And so when we come to verse 9, the verse that we're spending all of our time in, As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This is a verse of content. What does it mean to abide? It means to run in the fields of God's love. The love that the Father has for the Son is the love we are invited to. Just think about this. Many times we say, how can God love us because of our unloveliness? But this is a totally different paradigm shift. This has nothing to do with your unloveliness. This has everything to do with the perfect loveliness of Jesus. And the passage says, as the Father looks on His perfect, radiant, unblemished Son and says, I love you. It is with that intense. What kind of adjectives do you use for that? Untainted? Undiluted? This beautiful, overflowing, undiminished love that the Father has for the Son is perfectly embodied in Jesus coming to us. And it's not only perfectly embodied in Jesus' actions, but it's who Jesus is. He is the love of the Father. And He's come to us to say, I love you. Now just rest with me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened. I'll give you rest, because I love you. I love you. It is a full, unfiltered, undiluted, uninterrupted, overflowing, soul-satisfying, steadfast love that Jesus says, I love you. Remain in my love. Abide in my love. It's an unrushed, not moving on, resisting the urge to multitask your relationship with Jesus, sitting with him, looking at him through the spirit-breathed word, praying and calling out to the Father. Abiding, unhurried in his presence. But friends, I have a problem. My heart and my pace of life were hurried. And if abiding is unhurried, there's a problem. Busy, filled with rushing around, trying to be more efficient, seeking to get more done with less time, trying to understand the best time management techniques, only to be found still needing more time. Sabbatical taught me this, more time is not my problem. A hurried heart is my problem. And Dallas Willard, when he was asked basically, What can I do to experience the promised joy in this life? The peace of the Father who fills us and gives us everything that we need by his Spirit to love our neighbor as ourselves. What can I do to experience this joy now? His answer was this Ruthlessly eliminate her. And when he was asked again, okay, what else? What else can I do? He said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. Why do we hurry? I read a book by Alan Fadling called The Unhurried Life. And he says, this is the question that hurries our heart. What makes us important and valuable and significant? When do we matter? What will deeply satisfy our hearts and give us peace? What will rid this heart of our nagging anxiety? Where will we find joy and thankfulness? Hurry is not it. End quote. A hurried heart reflects a disordered heart. I'm going after things in places that I don't need to go. Hurry is not having a lot to do. Jesus had a lot to do. Many times, He was found doing a lot. Hurry is when you have too much to do so that your only response is to hurry, to rush around. And it cultivates. A hurried heart. This was my problem. I had, and I am seeking to recover from what John Mark Comer calls hurry sickness. Driven to accomplish as a measure of worth. Busy was sadly a subtle acknowledgement of importance. Comer says this When you get over busy, The things that are truly life-giving for your soul are the first to go rather than the first go-to. Let me say it again. When you get over busy, the things that truly give life to the soul are usually, sadly, the first things to go rather than our first go-to. Stillness. Time in the Word. Prayer. Enjoying the promises of God. I'll continue to open the door a little bit to what God has been showing me in great depth. When I hurry, I'm not very holy. And I'm not very happy. And I'm not very efficient either. When I hurry, I forget things. And I end up doing things that don't need to be done or doing them in a way that actually makes me less efficient and demands more of my time. When I'm running late trying to get others to catch up to my pace, a phenomenon I am sadly all too familiar with. I can be snappy. Not as gentle or kind, joyful. I'm anxious. But my anxiety can give birth to an anxious house. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Comer goes on to point out that our society and its kingdom are working against this abiding, unhurried heart and life by teaching us that slow is bad. Just follow this. If someone has a low IQ, what do we call them? Slow. When service at a restaurant is lousy, what do we call it? Slow. When a movie is boring, we complain about it being Flow. If you go to Merriam-Webster to look up the definition of flow, here's what you find. Mentally dull or stupid. Naturally inert or sluggish. Lacking in readiness, promptness, or willingness. Flow is bad in our culture. I was aware of my full plate, my anxious heart at times, but I never fully connected it to the pace at which I lived. A few years ago, the Lord was so kind to burden my heart with the discipline of taking a full day off, a Sabbath practice. And this was a game changer for my heart and my life. It changed my relationship with Jesus. It changed my mental health, my perspective, and my joy. But in reading many books over this break, I noticed that I was far too hurried the other six days of the week. Again, it was less about how much I was doing, and more about my hurried heart. I have found that as I grow aware of my hurried heart and casting my anxieties upon the Lord who cares for me, I get clearer insight on when the volume is too great. It's more about the anxious heart. And I learn to practice slowing down intentionally. It literally has changed the way I physically walk. Because I have generations of fast-walking people in my family. My nana was the world's fastest. Never running, but walking at a pace that could win an Olympic event. She was remarkable, and I do it too. Knowing my desire for an unhurried heart, there have been times over this break when my sweet wife will even say, you're walking fast again, slow down. I praise God for helpers. Help you see what you can't see. It's changed the way I drive. Closer to the speed limit. Not following as closely to others. Not having to be first. Not making every trip about the quote, shortest trip in the most efficient way possible contest that really doesn't exist anywhere except in my brain. It's changed how I look at lines at the store. I would get anxious, sometimes even angry, when I had to wait on the one who was serving when they were not so efficient or not speeding me along. They might need to grow in working hard. I'm not commenting on them. But I don't need to be fearful when I'm in line. Following one suggestion by a brother at the grocery store, I'm okay not to look at for the shortest line or the person who has the least amount in their cart. I too have made that a competition. And bizarrely, when I walk out and I feel like I've gotten through faster than others, I pat myself on the back as if I've won some type of accomplishment competition. It's the silliest thing in the world. Instead, I wait in line. And while in line, I pray. Or I thank God for His provision. His presence. Or I talk to the person near me. Focusing on cultivating an unhurried heart affects things. It affects how early I leave. It prioritizes sleep and exercise and people. It focuses on being present in the moment and more aware Of the presence of God in my everyday life. I might get less done. Who knows? But my heart is not as anxious. And my conversations are not as rushed. Efficiency is not the supreme goal of life. Abiding in Christ is. Walking with Him working hard in his strength extending his love this is abiding in Christ and hurry was a barrier to my abiding remember Jesus' words John 15:9 as the father has loved me so I love you abide in my word In my love, Jesus' words to abide are not seasonal or situational. The student, the CEO, the one who works a minimum wage job and has to work more hours than are humanly natural and healthy, there's not an excuse or a footnote for the few. Abide in my love is the command for every follower of Jesus. There is... A possibility for an unhurried heart, no matter your situation in life. Slowing down has been a discipline that has helped me abide in Jesus' love. This invitation to abide is an invitation to dive deeper in the experience and presence of the love of God for me. But to abide in His love, I had to be convinced of something. I had to be convinced of a different way of measuring my life. How do you measure your life? What's valuable? What makes you significant? What will make you happy? In preparation for sabbatical and in leaving sabbatical, I took a spiritual retreat And then before it started and at the end, I took another spiritual retreat. I go to D.C. usually because the train is fairly inexpensive and I have free lodging in D.C. So I can study the whole way there, not have to drive. Public transportation works out fine. And so I'm able to just find places to get away and to be still. One of my favorite places, uh, told to me by a pastor friend, is the National Portrait Gallery. I'm not a huge art fan, but I've learned to appreciate what's there because there's this massive middle room, this atrium with massive ceilings and natural light, and it's a place where I can just go and sit and reflect and study. Well, when I arrived at the National Portrait Gallery this time, they had an exhibit of all the famous pictures of the presidents of the United States. So every president had one kind of major painting made of them, and so I decided let me just take a few minutes and go up and look at this thing. So I went up and I just prayed, Lord, would you teach my heart what I need to learn? Would you guide me by your spirit and teach me from their successes, from their failures, from their courage, from their weakness? Would you just teach me? And every picture that you looked at had one or two paragraphs sitting there to describe their life. And it just struck me. Who gets to summarize their life? And who would summarize my life? And what would they say in two paragraphs? Well, likely at the museum, there's a curator or there's some group that does this historical research and decides this is what I want to say about this president and this painting. But it got me thinking. Whether I have four to five minutes left of my life or four to five decades, who's writing my story? And what will they say? You know what the question is, don't you? It's a question of significance. It's a question of worth. It's a question of joy. Where's What is defining my worth? And my mind was immediately drawn to a passage I had read several weeks before in John 18. John 18, Jesus has just been arrested and He's sitting in front of Pilate and Pilate asked Him this question. Are you the King of the Jews? That's what He had been charged with. Basically an insurrection that He was trying to Come over the government. He was now the new king. Is this what you're saying? Pilate says. And here's Jesus' answer. Verse 36 of John 18. Jesus answered Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to Him, So you are a king. Jesus answered You say that I'm a king. (laughs) He's so good. For this purpose, Jesus says, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And listen to what Pilate said. Pilate said to him, what is truth? He had no clue what Jesus was talking about. And the passage doesn't answer the question. But do you notice what he did? My kingdom is not like anything you know, Pilate. It touches the world, but it's not of the world. And it's so not of the world that the world doesn't understand it. What is truth? When Jesus sat there silent in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, don't you know I have authority over your life to let you go? Jesus says, don't you know? That you only have authority because it has come from above. He keeps pointing to another kingdom. Earlier in John 14, he says, peace I give you. My peace I leave with you not as the world gives do I give to you. It's a different kingdom. It's completely different than what the world understands. It's a Completely different metric and measurement of what brings joy and peace and life. And until we get on board with Jesus' kingdom, then we will hurry our hearts for another kingdom. We will busy ourselves, prioritize other things, define success and significance in other ways. And we will not find the joy of abiding in His love. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It kept coming back to me. My kingdom is not of this world. I read a book called The Secret Place of Thunder by John Stark. And he pointed to the undercurrent of hurry, which is, as he calls it, quote, accomplishment driven, accumulation consumed, searching for meaning in... Bigger, faster, stronger, richer, more famous, comparison drenched, self first mindset trumpeted by our world. This is absorbing us the metrics of success for joy, for peace, defined as the world defines it. Are you tired? I am. I am. I'm tired. I'm tired of defining my importance by bigger, faster, stronger, richer, more famous. I'm tired of defining my worth as accomplishment. Being somebody, having a title, or having a bank account, or properties, or land. Aren't you tired of basing your joy and sense of worth off of the world's way of thinking? How many followers you have? How many, how much money or property, or houses, or land, or degrees you have? Are you able to tell somebody off? That gets a a good check mark on your competency list these days. Who is stronger? Who has a best body image? How many people do you lead or employ? How big is your organization? Do people know you and talk about you? Are you famous? The list just goes on. Aren't you tired of being controlled by another worldview? And Jesus just simply says, my kingdom is not of this world. Someone writes a few paragraphs about me. Let's say that museum curator writes a few paragraphs about me. It won't be on a plaque next to a massive picture. Probably on a napkin. Be thrown away soon. And probably be something like, who is that? What did he do? Nothing much. I don't even think I know who he is. The question is, am I okay with that? Are we okay with that? Is it a life wasted? If it's not bigger, faster, stronger, more famous, richer, better than our neighbor kind of life. Not if we know who's writing our story. One day, somebody might write a story. It's called an obituary. It'll probably be lost in a few years. Who might write it? My wife. My kids, my family, who might contribute, I don't know. The church, friends, church planters, co I don't know. I don't know who's going to write. But this is what I know. My God is writing my story. The story that matters is written by my king. And his last day book summarizes What matters? It'll probably read something like this. He's been forgiven because I loved him. He loved me because I first loved him. He trusted in my son's finished work in my place. He is united to Jesus. And he chose the good portion that can never be taken away. I spent just a little bit of time with my uncle. My uncle took me on a family genealogy tour all throughout eastern Tennessee. I spent an entire day. He has taken my mom's side of my genealogy back all the way to the 1200s. And I'll actually speak a little bit more to that next week. But as we went to this windy road back in the middle of nowhere, some of my relatives built a Presbyterian church that had a cemetery. Many of my relatives were buried there. It's a sobering thing to look at a cemetery. And as I walked through, there was one that caught my eye. A likely relative, a woman, who had died when she was 19 years old. and the tombstone read Luke 10:42 she has chosen the good portion that will never be taken away that's the story i want written jesus is the good portion and he can never be taken away never his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Unseen is fine. Follow Him, and it's okay not to be alone as long as He is known. In His kingdom, we follow Jesus. We don't lead Him. We live for His glory and not our own. We find joy in the beauty of Jesus, not in self-gratification. In His kingdom, I'm dependent, not independent. I'm primarily a receiver, not a doer. His kingdom is not of this world. Enjoy this life to the full, but enjoy it as temporary because we were made for another world. And so he says in verse 5 of John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a totally different way to address this self-autonomous, I can do anything I put my mind to kind of culture. No, you can't. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing that matters in His kingdom. And that's what matters. Here's a quote from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. Person who's ultimately living for Christ's kingdom, who is pursuing meekness, will say this quote, "He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be." But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is, in the sight of God, of more importance than angels. In himself nothing. in God, everything." That is his, or her motto. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees them. And he has stopped caring, oh God may it be. He rests perfectly content to allow God to place his own values. He will be patient to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. Then the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of their father. He is willing to wait for that day. And in the meantime, he will have attained a place of soul rest. As he walks on in meekness, he will be happy, joyful to let God defend him. The old struggle to defend himself is over. And he has found peace, which meekness brings. Or... He has found peace, which abiding in the love of God brings. The central theme of Jesus' kingdom is abiding in his love. So, as the Father loves the Son, he delights to share that love with us. And he invites us to slow down, spend unhurried time in his presence. Abide in my love. Why does he say that so many times? Because there is a famine. A famine even in the church. A hunger that we feed with so many other things that still leave us longing We know God is present. That's a fact. But it's a fact that we seem content just to know in our minds rather than the fiery zeal of our heart, the holy angst that we see in men and women of old to press deeper and deeper into the presence of God, an experience of His presence. Our God is not simply present in theory. He is near us. He is with us. And our peace and joy and sin sickness finds his, its cure in our real moment-by-moment moment presence with the Father. Tozer goes on to say, Similarly, the presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. At the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into conscience awareness of his presence. You want to abide in his love, you will grow in awareness of his presence. Awareness that he is with you. Abide in his love. Psalm 16, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where is joy found? In His presence. That's why John 15 says what it says. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Our heart has a home and it's in his love. That is where joy is found. Abide in my love. Jesus is the central affection of the Christian's heart. He is the one that we are to pursue. And when, let me just say, when you open his word, I cannot tell you, for years I sat down to know facts about God rather than understanding that the whole purpose of an open Bible is to commune with a person. He is alive. He is there. He is with me. And Jesus wants to meet me and teach me and change me in the moment. It is not simply facts to know. It is a person to be with and to watch the Holy Spirit open my heart and give me affections for Jesus it's not just about knowing facts. It's a relationship. It's a warmth of heart. And so Jesus says, come to me. Abide in my love. The love of the Father has been given to us in the Son. And it assumes that we sit in His love. I want to end with one passage that had a unique striking effect in my heart psalm 118 psalm 118 verses 4 and 5 say this let those who fear the lord say his steadfast love endures forever out of my distress i called on the lord and the lord answered me and set me free here's the invitation church Steadfast love of the Lord invites you in your moments of distress to receive the love of God for you. You know what distress is like, don't you? The literal word here is meant to make us feel claustrophobic. Those who feel quarantined off by our emotions, by our circumstances, our situation in life, it just feels like it's closing in. He says, You, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. What do we do when our world feels like that? We stop, we acknowledge His presence, and we cast our cares upon the Lord because we trust Him to care for us. You know what it says right after that? To the one who feels suffocated, closed off, it says, the Lord answered me and set me free. You know what the literal understanding of set me free means? The picture is he has taken us into an open field. It's a play on words. The set me free is taking the one who feels trapped and imprisoned and walking him or her by the hand into a field to run around and enjoy everything that they were not enjoying when they were in distress and when they were closed off, when they were in panic, when they were hurried when they were struggling. The Lord is by my side, I will not fear. The Lord is by my side as my helper. And you might ask, why does he do this? He does this because he delights in us. This verse is quoted again, Psalm 118. He's picking up on 2 Samuel 22, 20. And he uses the same words. The Lord brought me out into a broad place. That's that open field. He rescued me or answered me. Because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. So I want to end with this quote. From Charles Spurgeon. On the necessity to abide in Christ. And I've adjusted a little bit of it. Not as if Spurgeon needed to be improved upon. But. I'm going to read this and then we pray. Communion with Christ is a certain cure for every ill. Whether it be the wormwood of sadness or smothering impact of earthly treasure, close fellowship with the Lord will take bitterness from the one and excess from the other. Live near to Jesus, Christian. And it is a matter of secondary importance whether you live on the mountain of honor or in the valley of humiliation. Living near to Jesus, you are covered with the wings of God and underneath you are the everlasting arms. Let nothing keep you from that hallowed communion that is the unique privilege of a hidden life in Christ. Don't be content with the occasional meeting, but always seek to retain His company. For only in His presence will you find either comfort or safety, peace and joy. Only with Him will you abound in love and hope. Jesus should not be for us as a friend we occasionally talk to, but one we are in constant touch with and having conversation with. You have a difficult road before you? Make sure, Pilgrim, that you do not go without your guide. You have to pass through the fiery furnace. Don't enter unless like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have the Son of God to be your companion. You have a storm of walls. You have to storm the walls of your corrupt heart. Do not attempt it without Jesus as your sword and shield. You feel pinned down by your anxiety. Cry out to the Prince of Peace who is able to slay your fear. When you meet with many temptations, do not rest upon the arm of your own strength. In every case, in every condition, you will need Jesus. But most of all, when the iron gates of death shall open to you, keep close to the captain of your soul. Lean upon his strength. Ask him to refresh you by his spirit, and you will stand before him at the end, without spot or blemish, and at peace. Seeing you have lived with him and lived in him here, you will abide with Him forever. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that there would be a joy to slowing down and abiding in Christ. Father, I pray that You might grant us eyes to see that an unhurried heart is a gift that You can give us. Freedom from plagued by constant anxiety. An invitation to sit and to be still in your presence and enjoy you day by day. Father, give us awareness. Give us awareness when our hearts are plagued by hurry. Give us awareness when we are living for another kingdom. When we're making the world's priorities our priorities, rather than measuring our joy and peace and success by Your kingdom. Father, we thank You that Your kingdom is not of this world. And You are giving us everything we need to have a new metric of joy and peace. Right now in this moment, Let's practice abiding. And then we will go to the Lord's Supper. But let's just take a brief moment of silence for you. As the Spirit of God is working in your heart for you to give your heart to Him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, for the first time, Confess your inability to change your life. Confess your sin sickness that you've been living for another kingdom. Repent. Turn to Jesus and receive the forgiveness that can only come from Him. He loves you and His sacrifice is enough for you. But no matter who you are, let's take a few seconds here to abide in Christ.